0: Welcome to Fitspeak, the Fraser Valley's fitness, wellness, and endurance sports podcast. I'm Kevin Hines. Fitspeak, the podcast, is available on Podbean, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and our website, which is www.fitspeak.com. We're also alive and kicking it on Instagram. We have pictures of all things triathlon and fitness related. Check it out. Tell us what you think. We are at Fitspeak. And we're also Facebook-friendly. The latest links to the coolest things in multi-sport, plus conversations to make you think about why you try. It's FitSpeak on Facebook. FitSpeak is brought to you by Wenting's Cycle and Mission, and here is your Wenting's Word of the Week. It is BMC. Mention that word to Bruce or any one of the staff at Wenting's, and you'll win a prize. It's just that easy. Once again, your Wenting's Word of the Week is BMC. And we're also brought to you by TriJoy, the spirit of multi-sport. With the start of a new year, it's an opportunity to build a new you. Make 2021 your year to do your first duathlon, finish your first Fondo, or run your fastest 10K. TriJoy can help. With our low client-to-coach ratio and our decades of coaching experience, we can help you become your best. It's TriJoy, the spirit of multi-sport. See the link at the bottom of this page on the program today. With the dark and rainy season here in the Fraser Valley, many of us are doing a lot of indoor training. Dropping by for another top five list, ATC head coach Mikey Ross will be here. He'll be explaining how to link your run and bike workouts into a fitness building and calorie burning brick session. But first, our next guest, an athlete from Ontario who to me in ways, shares a lot in common with a drummer from Ontario, Neil Pert. Pert, of course, the drummer with the Canadian rock trio Rush. He earned the name of the professor to both his peers and fans with his relentless practicing, meticulous playing, and a never-ending desire to learn and explore, whether that was with his drumsticks, his pen, and also, interestingly enough, his bicycle. Welcome to FitSpeak, Cody Beals. Thank
1: you very much. and Wow, what a, what a comparison to make. I can't claim to be a huge Rush fan. I couldn't really listen to Getty Lee's voice, but I definitely appreciate Neil Peart, and I didn't even know he was an Ontario boy. So there you go.
0: Yeah, not from too far away. I believe he was born in Guelph.
1: No kidding. That's, uh, yeah. that's
0: my hometown. Interesting, in a small world. Now, fair comparison and I'm, where I'm going with this is, you know, your approach to, to the world of travel. And I think you could earn the Canadian nickname of the professor with the way you uh, approach your training. I mean, with the background in physics, uh, you've got the numbers dialed in and you really blend, you know, the, the art and the passion with the science into uh, a pretty darn good formula for success.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you. That sounds like high praise. I think I'd have to uh, find another title, though. I'm pretty sure my, my friend Matt Hansen from the U.S. has already staked out the uh, the nickname, The Professor.
0: Well, we're, <laughs> we're, we're kind of thinking of that from a Canadian perspective. But um, I did a lot of, uh, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but I, I certainly did a little bit of research getting into this. And I was drawn to your website. Where did you learn to write like that?
1: Oh, man, I was really pulled in two directions coming out of high school. Like I've, I feel like I've almost been pigeonholed as a science guy my entire triathlon career coming from a physics background and, you know, taking a pretty science-based approach. But really out of high school, I could have equally gone to the art side of things as well. I always enjoyed writing. My mom, I would say, has been a huge role model in my life and she was writing freelance at the time and always really admired her writing style. So um, in a different reality, I would have loved to have done a BA and, and really cultivated that aspect of my uh, character, I guess.
0: Well, things ain't over yet. You're still a young guy, just turned 30. Tell <laughs> us tell us about the household, like the Cody Beal household. What was it like growing up?
1: So I, I feel really blessed about how my upbringing, my parents both were uh, born and raised in Toronto. And then earlier in their relationship, decided to get out of the city and move to a small town, which was Guelph at the time. And then when Guelph got to be a little bit too big, when I was six years old, we moved to an even smaller town, Fergus, Ontario. And that's August. where I grew up, and it was really like this idyllic place to grow up. Like we had a big backyard, and not only our backyard, but it was shared with pretty much all the neighbors. It's a kind of neighborhood where you could just roam free across all these yards, no fences, friendly neighbors, awesome bunch of kids in the neighborhood. And so I was outside playing, you know, until dinner, pretty much every day. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, my parents put me in music lessons. They signed me up for a swim team early on, against my wishes at the time, basically, but. Sort of forced me to take up swimming a little bit which was awesome looking back and i thanked them for it and really gave me every opportunity to you know explore the art side of my of my interests as well as being athletic as well which didn't ironically come as naturally to me as a little kid
0: so a bit of a late bloomer when it comes to that um so a lot of support with your mom and your dad and they were athletic any sporting heroes growing up as a kid or any other heroes you kind of went, hey, I want to, you know, grow up and follow that person's footsteps?
1: Sporting heroes, I'd say no. It's never really something I've had. I, I wouldn't even call myself a big-time sports fan. Even now as a pro triathlete, I kind of follow the, the racing side of the sport just enough to know my competition mm-hmm. uh, in terms of that level of research, not as so much as a fan. And, and uh, like, now within the sport of triathlon – I'm racing people who, who would have been my heroes growing up, and I've always maintained it's really tough to beat people who you hero worship. So I've, mm. had, I've had tons of positive role models in my life, tons of people I admire, um, but I haven't really had a lot of athletic heroes, I would say.
0: So no pictures of Paul Henderson or Simon Whitfield on your bedroom wall. <laughs>
1: Not exactly though. I will I will say Simon, I think everyone remembers his win in Sydney in, in 2000 and I was a 10 year old and I, I still vividly remember seeing that finish in, in my friend's basement and having had no inkling of my free future career careers approach or athlete. Um, so it was pretty flabbergasting to actually meet him in person later on at an airport uh, mm-hmm. after a race I did okay at and He had just the kind. He told me he followed my career. I don't know whether it was true or not. He's a pretty honest guy, so Mm -hmm. hearing that from him, I believe it. And it was uh, it was pretty awesome. He's one of the most down to earth people
0: out there. Uh, That's pretty amazing. A lot of the people in Ontario, and you're a bit of an exception. And so is that Sanders fella. After they have some sort of degree of success, like Simon did, like Peter Reed did, they packed their bags and they headed west to. to do some training here in beautiful British Columbia. Does that factor into your future? Or are you kind of gonna stick around Ontario?
1: Oh, I think I've lost enough friends to the West Coast and more, <laughs> most recently my sister. So it's, oh, really? it's kind of a joke in Ontario that everyone heads out there for you know, a vacation or something like that and they don't come back. Um, yeah, my sister's in Nelson, BC. So I've got, oh, I've got lots of connections out there. Man, I wish I could afford some BC real estate. Uh, it's really oh. a nice place. And as the Ontario winter sets in here, it's looking ever, ever more appealing, I guess. Um, But no, no immediate plans to leave Guelph. Thankfully we've got an amazing triathlon scene right here in Guelph, the arts and culture scene's awesome. Um, Yeah, we bought a place here a few years ago, so I'm already feeling like I'm putting down some roots here.
0: Putting down some roots in in Guelph and um, having a lot of success in the world and developing the community there. So when you were a high school kid, you did the things you were talking about, not too bad as a swimmer, you did some running, you did some early triathlon stuff, right?
1: Yeah, a little bit. So my mom did a triathlon to celebrate uh, a major milestone birthday for her. And so I kind of followed suit a year or two later after she set the example and uh, did my first triathlon at age 16, Multisport Canada Bellwood Triathlon. And uh, yeah, it was, I won't say I was like a smash hit right away for me, um, but it was certainly The seeds were sown, I would say, and then over the years that followed, I kind of dabbled in it a little bit, but it wasn't until after university that I really cracked down and started to take it quite seriously.
0: Absolutely. Now, as a high school kid, you went straight into university?
1: Yeah, that's right. I didn't take a gap year. And in retrospect, I think I should have done that. Um, I kind of just you know, rushed headlong for what I thought would be 10 years in school to get a physics PhD or something. And uh, I think a a year after high school would have allowed me to reflect a little bit more because I actually ended up starting in engineering at Queen's University and then moving into engineering physics, which was reputed to be one of the toughest programs in Canada in terms of the workload and the, the content you were studying.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I really didn't enjoy it, frankly, and I was too stubborn to make changes. So I, I basically suffered and soldiered through this degree that I didn't particularly really enjoy and didn't end up working in eventually as well, obviously. So um, it was definitely a formative experience for me, but it was really challenging. Like it was a really rough time for my mental health as well as my physical health. Uh-huh. So it's it's hard to look back on that with a regret because it's it shaped me, it's made me who I am, it made me a more empathetic person. I would say in high school I was a little bit pompous and thought I had it all figured out, as gotcha. do a lot of other 18-year-olds. Not an experience I'm keen to repeat, not an experience I'd wish on anyone else.
0: Yeah, so you're doing this half-heartedly but yet you stuck through it. I mean, doing a, a, a degree like that as compared to a few other degrees where you not only have to do the, the lectures and the tests, there's all of the lab work that goes along with that. Um, some serious hours and some serious dedication to, to your academics. How are you able to manage you know, doing triathlon and high level academics at the same time?
1: Oh, very poorly, I would say. Uh, I was training you know, more than 20 hours a week, more than I do now in some cases, on top wow. of this absolutely crushing course load. And, you know, the answer is that it was it was really taking a terrible toll on my physical and mental health. Like I was a chronic insomniac. I had suffered from pretty extreme anxiety. Um, I, I was developing what I now know to be relative energy deficiency in sport as a result of an eating disorder coupled with inappropriate training load. So my hormonal levels were messed up. Wow! Really, there were so many things, it's really hard to say what came first. It was just a vicious cycle of all these interrelated things that went off the rails. And um, yeah, it was, it was absolutely brutal. And it took me, you know, the better part of a decade to kind of claw my way back from that. So I would say that's another mm-hmm. variable that explains why I've been a relatively late bloomer in triathlon and really only come into my full potential, I would say, over the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, was there any time in university, I mean, you know, it's not necessarily the lack of ability Especially at high level academics, it's it's this you know determination, and then of course it works well with travel. And I think we both talked about you know what equals success: consistency over time through the good and the bad. But you must have were, were there any places in your career, as far as the academics go, where you just wanted to say to hell with that? I'm gonna get a job at Walmart.
1: Uh, not exactly. Like I would say, I've always had this this extremely strong perfectionist drive, and I, I wouldn't really pat myself on the back over that. I think sometimes perfectionism is prided in our society, but it's not... Uh, I've seen firsthand what a double-edged sword it can be. Like It's mm-hmm. driven a lot of the best accomplishments in my life, but equally led to a lot of suffering and just failure to be satisfied with what I've accomplished and where I'm at. Like In, in university, for example, I kind of channeled that perfectionism so strongly towards academics. As soon as I saw the first transcript that was published and they had a little number that Uh showed your ranking it was like 700 and something engineering students and they'd say you know your number out of 700 and whatever as soon as I saw that it suddenly became just this quest to get to the first spot and so I poured myself just an extreme degree into studying and then later I channeled that that ferocious intent into training as well Mm -hmm. so I've always had that drive that a really fiercely competitive nature coupled with perfectionism that has sometimes led me awry I would say and Looking back at university, I, I wish I'd had a lot more balance in my life because it was so far out of balance. And even now as a pro athlete, it's this inherently very single-minded pursuit, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm at a point in my life where I can do that, but I still try and cultivate a little bit more balance, you know? I just I can't be married to the sport. It can't be my 24-7. That's just not conducive to success, and that's been a very hard-won lesson in my 20s, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. So you had a pretty solid rise up the ranks. You... Uh we were able to make the transition fairly quickly from uh, a successful age grouper, my goodness, your first half Ironman and you go under four hours?
1: Yeah, that was kind of the turning point where I started to realize that I could maybe go professional. I had some people around me that really encouraged me to do that based on that result.
0: Sounds like scary stuff. And when I think about professional triathletes, there's kind of like this chicken and egg thing. I mean, in order to, earn a living as a professional triathlete, there's, there's a few sources of income and, and the nice thing is with the PTO, it's, there's becoming a lot more stable source of income. But getting out there and winning races is one thing, but then trying to market yourself as a brand, that's quite another. Um, how did that work out? Were you the person banging on sponsors' doors asking, you know, to sponsor Cody Beal or does the money and do the offers start coming in after you've won a couple of big races?
1: Well, I would say, first of all, you're astute to recognize that the business side of the sport is essential. I think a lot of casual observers of the sport don't really appreciate that. They just see us as athletes. But very quickly on, I wasn't sure what I was signing up for, but I had to learn that in order to hack it, you can't just earn prize money. Sponsorship's an essential piece of the equation, I guess, to, to make a living as a professional triathlete. So I kind of had to learn on the fly, like I had no background in business, and mm-hmm. I, look, I look at some of the early missteps I made and kind of just shake my head now, but it was, it's was it been one long learning experience over my seven years, now eight years as a pro, I guess. Um, so sponsors weren't exactly kicking down my door over the first couple of years. I've always mm-hmm. been really transparent about finances, and you know, my first season, I earned some prize money at most of the races I did, and I still only made about 10 or 11 grand from triathlon. So that's and- barely, barely covering my, my expenses as a professional triathlete, never mind my living expenses. So it took really years of concerted effort to network as well as establish good results before doors began to open with sponsorship. And so I would say sponsorship of the caliber that I felt like I deserved kind of lagged my results and profile in the triathlon community by three Mm -hmm. or four years. It's almost like you have to establish you're around, you're here to stay, and before companies will really take a risk on you.
0: Yeah. And thankfully at the time, I believe you had some very um, understanding parents.
1: Yeah, so after university, I went back and lived at my folks' place, and thankfully they had a a somewhat detached building, so I had a little bit more privacy, and it worked out really well. Uh, It was a a really important time in my life, and it allowed me to focus completely on triathlon without taking a huge financial risk. I see a lot of pro triathletes earlier in in their career, they put themselves in a position where they feel like they have to succeed because there's all this financial pressure if they don't, and I think that that motivates a certain type of person, but for me, I think that would have been crippling. So, you know, a lot of my general advice is just remove the financial pressure as much as possible. Put yourself in kind of a low stakes environment because I have enough inner drive and hunger to, you know, put in the work. I don't need the financial pressure on top of that.
0: Yeah, there's, there's hunger and then there's hunger for food. And if that gets in the way of your training and your recovery, you're just digging yourself a hole and hoping for a miracle. And that would be a, a pretty grim lifestyle indeed.
1: Yeah, I've been around a few pros who I know well um, to see when that can work sometimes. Like I had a a guy, a good friend confide in me that his wife was going to basically ask him to leave the sport if he didn't deliver at a certain race. And lo and behold, he had a stellar performance. Another guy was basically on his last dime. He spent his last dime on the rental car for this training camp and then hit the ball out of the park at a major Ironman. So it works for some people. I haven't been there exactly I've been a little bit more meticulous with my planning or maybe a little yes. more conservative with my with my risk tolerance. It's uh, different strokes for different folks, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, with your friend there putting it on the line for the race, it's kind of sounding like a, a country and Western song and could be rode <laughs> instead of trying one. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's that same lifestyle and obsession, some people would say. So, um, boy, oh, boy, what a whirlwind. What a crazy, you know, 18 months you've had. Ended off last year in Kona with the mechanical, after that amazing performance uh, over at Mount Tremblant. Uh, you started this year in Mexico, um, nice flat tire, you wound up 10th. Then, then the poop hit the fan, we had COVID, no racing at all. I mean, what the hell's going through your mind in those earlier days, back in March and April when you weren't exactly sure how bad things would get?
1: It was pretty stressful. And I was really not sure how my career would develop after that. There was a lot of uncertainty. I remember all my sponsors scheduling a call in March and I thought, okay, this is it. I'm going to get, you know, respectfully shown the door after all these mm. years working together because these companies are going to be really struggling. And yeah. uh, I'm really thankful all my sponsors stood by me. So once that happened, it took a lot of pressure off. And there was definitely some very stressful moments this year, but I look at it as a really important opportunity for introspection. You know, I had a brilliant season in 2018 an okay season in 2019. Those two years, I was first or second at practically every race I finished, mm-hmm. including you know my Ironman debut and then a follow-up sub-8-hour race at Trombone. So things were going really well on the race course. But internally, I was, I was starting to struggle. I was kind of losing my way. Um, I parted ways with my coach at the end of last year. There were just a lot of things in my life that weren't falling into place. and My relationship with the sport was really changing rapidly as well. I think wow. after... So? After that, after that breakthrough in 2018, I just felt like I suddenly felt so much pressure. I felt like everything I was doing was under the microscope, and I don't mm. know if this is actually the case. We're still yeah. a, a relatively small sideshow of a sport and pro one, mm. but yeah. you know, it got to be it got to the point where there were you know threads discussing me on Slow Twitch and stuff, and every performance was being dissected. And I felt like every time I had I went on the race course, I had to do something spectacular, mm. and it it really it really messed with my head, and it made me start to hate racing, and mm. I barely raced in 2019 as a result. So my relationship with the sport was getting a little bit toxic. And this year, kind of the overarching message for me is that, you know, I had, to, I had to lose triathlon. I had to lose my norm in the sport to really appreciate what I had. Because I could have seen, had we not had this pandemic and all this disruption, I could have seen a path where I might have limped along for another couple of years in the sport, done okay on the business side of it, and then just faded away into, you know, an unremarkable retirement. Having lost it this year, I realized that I'm still so hungry for it, and if I were to retire now, I'd be filled with such regret, and that that really terrified me. So it really reaffirmed my commitment to the sport, um, and it, I, I wouldn't have known that just looking at the, the unremarkable performances I had this year. But it really set the stage for some introspection, and it was it was challenging but important.
0: I'll I'll let you know a bit of my bias. I you know I mean Kona is is a big show. I don't know if it's as big as uh, you know the American Ironman hype. Corporate giant wants to to build it up to be, but um, you had the debut in Kona, you had the mechanical there. But I mean, you've also had some stellar performances. I mean, your debut was amazing. You followed that up; that was amazing. So I'm going to go back to something that you said: you um, you wouldn't want to to have left the sport because you had some. Um, I suppose, beats to pick with certain races or certain things to prove. Is, is that a good read of what you were at?
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I, I just haven't accomplished all that I want to accomplish in the sport. Um, like I, I'd be lying to say that winning a 70.3 in Ironman is as thrilling as it used to be. Obviously, I haven't had wins on the biggest stages of the sport. The very first time I, win a, I won a 70.3 and likewise with an Ironman, I'll never quite replicate that feeling. Mm. So you're never going to get quite the same dopamine rush unless you're going to <laughs> a race like like kona or something right yeah um and I, i'm i'd also be lying to say that i'm motivated by going and trying to win kona i have every confidence my physiology suited to that race i want to be back there i know mm. i'm capable of great results there um but that's not what that's not what gets me up early in the morning to go to the pool
0: so so what is it is is there a specific race or i mean I've been training, you know, twice a week for 12, 14 years now, and, and my Kona days are still ahead of me when I turn 75, I think, and my competition either dies off or is in a wheelchair. But uh, what, what gets it going for you? Is it the big payday? Is it the fame, the fortune? Is it the the burden of the, the workouts? What, what gets you off the, off the couch or out of bed at, you know, 5 or 6 in the morning and into a cold pool?
1: Oh, man, Kevin, this is a question… That- I get a lot, you know, what is the source of your motivation? And it used to really panic me, honestly, because I felt like there was this tension between what the actual answer was and what I thought people needed to hear. And most people just kind of give you the knee jerk answer. of, Oh, I want to be I want to win Kona. I want to be on the podium at Kona. I want to win stuff like the dumb jock answer. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the case for most people. I'll call them out on that. I think very few Mm -hmm. people actually fantasize in their mind winning Kona when they're training all the time. And that's what drives them for me, I I had to kind of interrogate this. And what I keep coming back to is that I just I love the lifestyle and racing is almost the means to the end. I think for most people, training is the means racing is the end. I I love racing. Don't get me wrong. But Mm -hmm. racing justifies a lifestyle that I'm really enamored with. I love being the master of my own destiny. I love being an entrepreneur in triathlon. Um, I love waking up and having the day empty before me and I can fill it however I please. That's what I love, you know, and that the training, just the, the daily grind, the deliberate practice, all of that is so much more important to me than any result. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. So that's kind of what I arrived back at when I get that question.
0: Yeah. So turning, turning it to the process and not that, you know, having your name called by Mike Riley on the finish line on LA drive that mythical day in, in October, some year soon, we hope.
1: Yeah. And this is a lesson I've had to periodically reacquaint myself with because it is easy to become really fixated on results. And every time I've been leading up to a race, getting just tying myself in, up of knots over a certain result, it's not been conducive to my success. It's not good for my mental state leading to a race. And it's not even good for my execution. I would say it doesn't hmm. lead to good performances. So I always have to drag my focus back to the process. And yeah. then I'm not the first to discover this, you know, this is like default advice I would say for for athletes and people in a lot of other respects in life is,
0: uh, one of the things that, that motivates me, and I, I know you've had some brushes with this as well, is fear. So I don't know if you had this one on your schedule for, for 2020, but the all of Western Canada triathletes, we were pretty excited about having the Ironman come back to uh, its hometown in Penticton. Officially, they, uh, they showed us poor folks who were silly enough to sign up for this thing, the run course. And I kind of knew that you were going to have that brutal thing, but my goodness um, talk about process when I'm running my intervals now, when I'm doing and I'm doing a whole lot more hill intervals and all other sorts of training, it's, it's that hill that scares me. It is one hell of a motivator at times.
1: Definitely looking at courses. I've had moments where I've been filled with fear and I would say for me, it's more technical bike courses. Hmm. That's really, really what terrifies me. Like I'm not, uh, I'm not a, an incompetent bike handler by any stretch. I joke about being the worst bike handler in the pro ranks. It's honestly <laughs> not true. Like I, I'm, I'm a fair bike handler. I'm not, I'm no Sebastian Keenley or Rudy von Berg or something like that. Whipping around switchbacks. But yeah, looking at certain courses, I've, I've just avoided them altogether because my risk tolerance is so low. I'm just not comfortable with the level of risk that descending at high speed on technical mm. courses, forces you to take on, especially on the, on the uh, pro men's side. I would say there is, there is an element beyond skill where you're just accepting some amount of risk in order to remain competitive in the race. Mm-hmm. So this year I really set out on a mission to work on my bike handling and improve that a lot. I did my first draft legal race on a criterium style course. Uh, I did the Canadian pro tri championships, which featured I think 31 laps and 120 something turns all, all told. So I really drilled that hard and I made some progress, but I think the bottom line is I'm just more risk averse than a lot of these maniac pro athletes I'm competing against.
0: <laughs> and one of those fellas is, a, I, I believe, a good friend of yours and ours, and he's also a Wadi Inc. guy on in Nathan Killam.
1: Oh, absolutely. Nathan's one of the best bike handlers in the pro ranks, for sure. Yeah, look at the stuff he's posting on his uh, social media, like ripping around these mountain bike trails and stuff in B.C., it's Next level compared to what I'm doing,
0: <laughs> yeah. He's he's a, he's a pretty uh fearless competitor. I mean, he does it all. He'll do he'll mix it up with the lads in the super league, he'll do, of course, Ironman. And one of his highlights of his career was you know placing up there with uh Ewan Sanders that day at Tremblant. So, uh, we're sending him some love, he's a hell of a character, and we're, we're glad to have him in the sport.
1: Yeah, I admire a super versatile athlete like that. Um, it hasn't been me in the past, but I, I really don't want to. Pigeon myself is strictly an Ironman guy. So even mm-hmm. though I think that's where my physiology is, where my forte lies in terms of my physiology, I want to keep one foot in other kinds of racing. If nothing else, to have fun. But also, I think it serves uh, the aim of developing your your skills pretty well, is, mm-hmm. is, uh, in addition.
0: Uh, speaking of diversifying, I mean, this was diversification, not by choice, but because you were kind of forced to. So this year's big event was not Kona. It was Challenge Daytona, the, the PTO World Championships in Daytona. And that was an unusual uh, cycling situation for everybody. Did you do any special training for that uh, going in? Not
1: exactly. Like Daytona is a course I was talking about being un- uncomfortable with certain bike courses. Daytona is absolutely in my wheelhouse. The course where you're in aero position 100% of the time, the only time you're braking is the dismount line coming into T2. Um, that didn't freak me out at all. The mm-hmm. only thing I may- might have done a little bit differently is I did some rides where I was holding aero position in a really disciplined way on the trainer because I think the trainer is a fantastic tool to prepare for a race course where you basically don't move other than circling this oval. So um, that's about all I did differently. Approaching the race, I kind of had misgivings about it for a lot of reasons. I was really stoked about the PTO, the development, what that meant for the sport in general. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the timing of the season, I've always felt like racing late in December is kind of borrowing opportunities from the following year. But, Mm -hmm. hey, there's every year to adapt and take what you can get. It's definitely this year. Um, Also, in terms of the distance – not something that I felt really, really excited about as a, as a guy who specializes in Ironman distance racing. Yeah. Um, I am not want to look a gift horse in the mouth, but I would have mm-hmm. loved to see a three-quarter distance race between ah. 7.3 and Ironman. But, you know, I was there to show solidarity with the PTO. That's the, the main metric you're looking at to evaluate the success of this fledgling organization is the buy-in from the professionals like me. So I was there to, to show how much I support and back the whole concept behind the PTO.
0: Any any takeaways that you could relate, um, you know, that you'd write in your scrapbook from the Challenge Daytona race? I mean, what, 22nd out of 49, was it?
1: 21st out of, uh, I think there were 58 guys in the start list. I'm not sure how many starters we had, 50-something.
0: Happy hmm, with that I, or happy with your I, performance?
1: It was fair. I'd call it a 70th percentile outcome. I think I could okay. have tracked the top 15 on a perfect day. Um mm-hmm. There were some, so the, the race, like, I really can't sing the praises enough. The PTO did a killer job. They got so many details right. There were a couple instances in the race that left a bit of a sour note for me because of um, the way rules were enforced, specifically at the swim start and drafting. Mm. And I don't really want to believer those points too much. I think there's a, the right time to bring those up. And I've already you know, gave, given some constructive feedback to the right avenues Okay. Um, I don't want to nag on a really positive moment for our sport, basically. But what I felt like were a couple rule enforcement issues cost me my shot at the top 20. And unfortunately, the way the prize money paid out, everyone yeah. from 21st to the last finisher got the same paycheck. So right. on one hand, it's amazing that we even got a paycheck. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, it's hard to not look back at that with a little bit of what could have been mentality, I guess.
0: do you you think this is going to be a regular thing at the end of every year now even even if we do see the return of in quotes regular racing and the regular kona
1: well there's been talk of a series of four of these it sounds like i don't know if it's a firm commitment yet but there's talk of four million dollar plus prize purse races all occurring on tracks like this and potentially even one or two that are longer pretty i think that's awesome even if i don't end up doing all these races or none of them it's just great it's for the profile of our sport like it brought a degree of professionalism prestige coverage that we've really never ever seen before kona included maybe outside of the olympics we've never seen anything like that before so yeah that, mean, that's just a huge win for this
0: sport i was watching it on the treadmill as you guys were battling it out there in daytona and i was yeah i was thinking gee this is like an nbc or cbc and it's heyday uh, quality sports production we had mckinnon there with the camera on on the motorcycle although i didn't you know, I was watching, did not have a chance to see you on there, but of course they were flashing back to, you know, some of the hot shots on the bike, and of course the front of the race, and then when all the drama unfolded with, uh, you know, Alistair cramping up, and then the changes in the lead, so I mean, that was was compelling television.
1: It was, and that's exactly what our sport needs, and if that means we have to have shorter format races to make it uh, conducive to TV coverage, I'm all for that. I think opportunities to have followed tv coverage if we take any lessons from golf or tennis mm-hmm. and one thing that i liked about the pto is that they're really taking their pointers from other sports that have had a blueprint from developing from kind of you know sideshows like triathlon to professional mm-hmm. amateur sports to professional sports to you know marketable tv coverage type sports like the a-list professional sports we all know yeah they, that blueprint has already been set out and the pto isn't trying to reinvent the wheel they're following and taking cues from golf and tennis which i think is awesome
0: one of the things I think this sport needs, and I was talking to Rachel McBride when we had her on the podcast a couple of weeks back, is what we need both, uh, you know, in the female ranks and the male ranks are are, are some exciting rivalries. Um, spill the beans. Uh, are there any, you know, unspoken rivalries among the, you know, ranks and the high-level guys for uh, long distance? Oh, people pitch...
1: My and Lionel's history is a rivalry, which I think is a little bit generous because we've probably mm-hmm. raced a dozen times and I've only beaten him twice at the two Tromblons other than a flat tire. He had it, I think Texas 70.3. So who's keeping track though, right? No, mm-hmm. I'm it, like, even just that bit of a rivalry has been fantastic for my career. Like the two Trombon wins beating a nice. Lionel there that, that really made my career over the last couple of years. So that's proof about what you're talking about. People love a rivalry. And so the PTO is really working on building those up and, Giving them, a, giving them a stage. I would say, by and large, professional athletes get along pretty well. It's a very supportive community. Most of us are friends. There's very few pro athletes who I actively dislike. Mm. Um, but I think there's always stories there. There's guys who I definitely want to beat more than others. Ah. And sometimes, sometimes it's my my two best training partners right here in Guelph, Jackson Laundrie and Taylor Reed. You know, <laughs> okay. I love those guys to death. Yeah. But when we're racing, there's pretty much no one else in the field I want to beat more than those two. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh... I've got a training partner and, you know, whenever we start at the finish line, the the war is on and (laughs) I I have a less than enviable track record against this fella, but that's not going to stop me from, from the line and doing the training and giving it my best shot. So before, before we wrap up uh, things with you, Cody, just a couple of random fun questions. I I get these things. I mean, I've been in at my first Iron Man was in the year 2000, but damn it, I'm still getting bad dreams about this thing. Um, Does that haunt you at night? You know, do you get bad dreams about triathlon period?
1: Oh yes. I have uh, I have a recurring anxiety dream often as I approach races or other stressful moments in my life where I'm trying to find my way to transition. And it's like an amaze in the morning and I I Uh can't get there. And I hear the race starting. I hear them making the last call for the starters and I can't make it there in time. And I'm fighting my way through a crowd. And I have that, that dream again and again and again. <laughs>
0: oh, man. Yeah. Uh, you, you're not alone. I'm not alone. I've talked to other, especially first-time Ironman people, and and they get them. I was, you know, running through transition in a shopping mall trying to find my bike. It's it's terrible. It's <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting I think obsession. I've had that dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what scares you, triathlon or otherwise? Oh, I,
1: I would say regret. The answer I gave earlier. Um, <laughs> Like looking back at university, I have a lot of regret over how that how that transpired and how I, I feel like I had this really formative experience, but also missed out on a lot of things in my late teens and early twenties. So now I look at every aspect of my life as an opportunity and I'm, I'm scared that I'll make a misstep and be filled with regret
0: after, because it's painful. So that's what I, what I would say, regret. More emotional stuff. What pisses you off? Maybe, maybe about triathlon, that, that could be interesting.
1: Uh, people who have a win-at-all-cost mentality that drives them to cheat, I would yeah, say. Okay, I, yeah. I, I'm, I've been, I'm pretty principled about that. There's a real line in the sand. Obviously, a lot of people would, would say, you know, like doping is something that you've undeniably crossed the line, of course. But mm. I even see evidence of of smaller transgressions that I think reflect the same mentality as doping. Uh,
0: Want to specify any? I know course cutting is kind of a
1: yeah, op- cor- Canadian cor- course example. Cutting, yep. Drafting on the bike. Yeah. Moving forward at the swim start before the gun. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Realty hard on that point, but that's been a big problem lately. Okay. Um, yeah, that, that, that all those things really piss me off, and they're evidence of the same mentality that leads people to dope.
0: I would say. Um, we're talking about writing at the start of the podcast. Cody, tell us: is there going to be a book?
1: Oh man, Kevin, I haven't done enough noteworthy to write a memoir yet. That would be so Are you kidding? My my goal is to. Uh, have achieved enough over the course of my career that people would actually want to read a memoir. And, of course, there's lots of funny stories that I can't really share publicly at this point for fear yes. of losing sponsorships and mm-hmm. my good, clean-cut Canadian image, but maybe one day I'll reach a point where I'm ready to put those all out there.
0: <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, is you know, um, there's there's the memoir, but there's also, it's been a long time. We had a Canadian fella about 10 or 12 years ago, um, Gordo Byrne. Came second in Ironman Canada a couple of times. And he wrote, um, he was working with Joel Friel, who, of course, wrote the athlete's training manual. And he wrote this book called Going Long. And I I think it's in time for an update. You might be the man for that job.
1: Oh, is this, we're talking nonfiction. Yeah, I could see myself writing nonfiction. I've done some of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you're a pretty versatile writer, just writing your blog, or reading rather your blog. And I'm pretty sure there's a creative, uh, you know, right side of the brain in there as well. Uh, let's switch to the right side of the brain. Um, I noticed that you had some tracks for um, pain Cave music, but that was old. Do you have any new favorites that you're cranking in the basement nowadays? Considering oh, you're I- spending a lot more time there.
1: I've been putting out a playlist uh, every month or two, basically with different themes. And um, yeah, the, my followers on Instagram seem to get a kick out of it, at least some of them. So I, I love sharing music. I put a lot of thought into how I put together playlists. Nah. throughout playing piano and stuff. Got the piano over here behind me, but I'm, really needing to get that tuned. So mm-hmm. I would say uh, my training music, a go-to a lot of the time is um, anything in like broadly the electro-funk genre. I think funk music's awesome for training and electro funk's kind of a modern take on, on the funk genre. So I, I love that
0: stuff generally. So is there any artist I should search for on Spotify that would hit the mark?
1: Oh, lately I've been on a bit of a Frank Moody kick and yeah. also a guy named Elliot Moss who has been a real discovery. Just loving everything he's putting out.
0: Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out. Um, two more questions, and we're out of here. So the first one, to- well, they're actually all fun. So we've got you, Nathan Killam, Rachel McBride. You're all going head to head in the beer mile. Who wins?
1: <laughs> Not me. I'm a distant third. I, I, I see, I see Rachel McBride and Killam sprinting for the win there for sure. Yeah, <laughs> my tolerance these days is pitiful. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is, is that something you're going to work on in the next uh, week and a half until we get up to uh, New Year's Eve?
1: Oh man, I, I just feel like the way I metabolize alcohol has just changed since I was a high schooler. So I'm going to say no. That's just a <laughs> okay. No for me. Fair I mean, enough. Half a drink's my limit these days.
0: <laughs> All right, let's talk. This is our standard speed closing question. So, Cody, um, if you could be an animal, an animal other than a human being. What kind of animal would you be, and tell us why.
1: Wow. I'm going to go with an otter. Oh, I just think cool. they look I just think they look really peaceful. They're just, like, floating on their back for a lot of their existence in the ocean, and that just looks like the definition of a peaceful life to me.
0: And, and nice and furry, just like your beard there, you know. you <laughs> cute, cute and cuddly, and you just want to, you know, build a backyard swimming pool to watch these cute critters uh, just have fun because it looks like they're always having fun.
1: Exactly. I just want a nice, simple life where I can <laughs> cuddle and just float around in the ocean.
0: Well, thank you so much <laughs> for uh, for taking the time. I know you're uh, ending off your uh, quarantine there for traveling down to Florida. Um, we hope that you stay strong and motivated. That's going to happen. And. Keeping our fingers crossed for not only you, but the whole triathlon communities, we the uh, venture into 2021.
1: Thanks, Kevin. I'm feeling personally pretty optimistic about not just my life, but the state of our sport in general.
2: I'm Mikey Ross, coach with Abbotsford Triathlon Club, and this is my top five list for FitSpeak brick workouts. A brick, when we're talking multi-sport, is any set of workouts that follow one right after the other, and which involves at least two different sports. Here are my own top five awesome bricks that are designed for easiest execution on an indoor trainer and a treadmill. Try them out the way I describe them, then don't hesitate to get creative and tailor them best to your own personal physical condition and training goals. As with all workouts, the key is to know your own body and listen to it when it's telling you, this is too long, or you're pushing me too hard. Number one Bike Run 3030. This brick is a common traditional triathlon training brick. Triathlons have you bike before you run. So completing a bike run brick workout once every week or two will condition your legs for being able to make the biomechanical transition from sit and spin to stride. Keep this workout simple at first. See how your heart, lungs and legs respond to a 30-minute bike ride followed immediately with a quick shoe change and a 30-minute run. If 30-30 is too ambitious for you at first, shorten the time. A 15-15 or 20-20 ride-and-run will still give you a chance to feel the transformation. Number 2. Run-Bike-Run with our Run Focus. This brick variation is actually a race known as a duathlon. Some duathlons have an even distance for each run, while others put a longer run last. Whatever way you design it, you don't have to make it long to make it effective. I recommend for brick newbies this formula, 10 to 30 minutes run at moderate pace, then a 10 to 30 minute ride, followed by a 10 to 30 minute run at a faster pace than the first run. None of these times, however, are written in stone, so make them work for you. Number three, run bike run with a bike focus. To magnify the effect of running on tired legs, make both the effort and the duration of the bike portion of this brick your focus. Keep the runs about the same effort and duration, but pour most of that mojo into the bike ride. By doubling or even tripling the time spent riding, you'll ensure that the final run gives you that bike to run transformation. Start with 15 minutes in both runs, with 30 to 45 minutes for the ride. Be aware that your mind might trick you with that good old perceived level of exertion guideline. Heavy legs from cycling can make you think you're maintaining the pace of your first run when you've actually slowed down considerably during that second run. Number four, bike run times two, or bike run, bike run. This brick is a blast to play with. You get two opportunities to test and improve upon your endurance and stamina. I sometimes do this brick as a 15-bike-15-run, 15-bike-15-run. Then I check my data later to ensure that I was faster in both the second bike and second run. This follows my own training philosophy of always finishing strong and trying to never fade, fade, fade. Number 5. Swim, bike or run. These bricks are obviously a little trickier to execute since you need to start out in a pool or open water, thus involving safe storage of your gear. If you ever get the opportunity to experience these bricks though, they will help you determine if you have any swim vertigo. Some folks, upon standing up from and leaving water, feel the effects of a wavy, splashy swim more than others. Conditioning your body to performing in a vertical position after a horizontal swim is different for every individual. It's best not to be discovering these physical effects in the middle of a race. You may be lucky like me and not feel like a wonky donkey at all, but if you do, talk to your caregiver about the possibilities of a motion sickness medication. Make sure that all of the ingredients in the medication are allowed because triathlon has strict rules to prohibit performance enhancement through doping. The best way to learn about the advantages of bricking is jump in and do one. So why not set a goal to choose one of my top five bricks and do it as you ease on into 2021. If you're a data geek, repeat the same brick under the same conditions with the same equipment two weeks later. You may surprise yourself with how quickly your legs adapt to the brick trick. For FitSpeak, I'm Mikey Ross.
0: And that's it for another edition of FitSpeak, the Fraser Valley's fitness, wellness, and endurance sports podcast. We'd like to thank Cody Beals for his time on the podcast today and invite you to check out the blog on his website. It's really easy to remember, codybeals.com. That's codybeals.com. FitSpeak is brought to you by Wenting Cycle and Mission, and your Wenting's Word of the Week is BMC. Once again, your Wenting's Word of the Week is BMC. And yes, we're also brought to you by TriJoy, the spirit of multi-sport. Whether you want to get faster or go farther, TriJoy can help. With our low client-to-coach ratio, we can give you the attention you deserve to achieve your potential. It's TriJoy, the spirit of multi-sport. See our link at the bottom of this page. Just a reminder, we too are on Facebook. We're your local go-to spot for information and inspiration. Yes, it's Fitspeak on Facebook. And now, at Fitspeak on Instagram, your place on the internet where you can see what we've been up to, what excites us, and for you to share your story in pictures. Finally, if you're listening to us on Podbean, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts, why not drop by our website to see a bit more about the program? Maybe leave us a comment on the show or ideas for future programs. For Kevin Watt, Dr. Her, Roy Macbeth and Mikey Ross. I'm Kevin Hines. Thanks for listening.